Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iran collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Taryn Siegel. The podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode... We never live in this way. We change our life from one day to another one. Everything changed. Everything. It's not your life. It's only really when the health emergency starts to subside that it's possible to kind of look and see what else is happening under the surface. All right, so I have with me Jean McKenzie, uh, Europe correspondent for the BBC. Jean, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. So I know that you were in Italy during this very strange month in its history. Do you think you could tell us what the current situation is right now in Italy? Kind of where has Italy come from? Yeah, so I arrived in Italy about the third week of March. So at that point, the country hadn't quite reached 10,000 deaths, but it still Mm. had more deaths than anywhere else in the world at that point. And I was there for four weeks, so uh, nearly a month. And I got back just over a week ago uh, to Belgium, where I am now. So I'm now quarantined in my flat. So I really experienced this month in Italy where the country was in total lockdown. People were really starting to process the extent of the health emergency that had hit them sort of the previous month. And where they are now, I guess, is sort of looking towards what we're all calling phase two. So Mm. the time which the country can gradually start to reopen on Monday. But the country has set a very, very cautious reopening compared to other countries in Europe. So it's going to be very gradual. Some businesses reopening on Monday, but a really slow time frame really for the rest of the country. So Mm. bars and restaurants into June, schools not until September. And so really the country is starting to think about what the next step looks like, but many feeling perhaps it's not going to happen quickly enough. Yeah. So you said that next week 
there in between phase two. It kind of reminds me of in New Zealand, they're trying to break this down into levels to give citizens an idea of what current situation is and where they're going. Is Italy adopting the same program? Are there a system of phases so Italians at least know this is where we are and this is where we're headed? Yeah, very much so. And I think it's just to give people in Italy that sort of direction, that hope. So at the moment, is it is very staggered. As I said, sort of businesses first, then we're looking at restaurants and bars, schools not until September, as I said, which is very late. And I think it's mm. to give Italians a sense that they are moving forward, even though it's very slow, because the lockdown in Italy is the strictest in Europe. It's been the longest in Europe. By the time we reach Monday, we're looking at eight weeks Italians have been locked in their home. And this isn't a lockdown like other countries. This is going to absolutely kept in your home for all reasons. No exercise, no work. Really, people have only been allowed to leave for essential reasons to go and buy food. And this is from their closest supermarket. One person in the house can leave. So the restrictions have been so tight. It has felt like an eternity for so many Italians for so many different reasons. So they need a sense that things are changing and moving forward, however small they are. So what were you hearing from people in that situation where they couldn't even leave to go exercise and they were in an eight week long lockdown? I mean, what were people experiencing I mean, my my kind of aim when I went out there, I guess, was exactly that, to really try and understand what people were going through. I went, as I said, at quite an interesting time where the situation in the intensive care units was, was actually starting to stabilize, even though it was very much still in the throes of a health emergency. So I did want to understand the impact that this was having on people's lives, because, of course, Italy, compared to everywhere else in Europe, is further along. So I thought it would really give us clues as to what other places kind of faced. And some of the things that I came across, first of all, was just the impact on people's livelihoods, you know, that day to day poverty that people were experiencing really quite suddenly. So even after a month of this lockdown, I met people who had run out of their savings, Mm -hmm. unable to make money because a lot of Italians, millions of Italians work off the books So their jobs are kind of not guaranteed, but also they're not covered by any of the government support that's been offered. And even the government support when I was there sort of a month into the lockdown was still not coming through. There's a lot of bureaucracy in Italy that ties things up. So, yeah, there were people who had run out of money. There were no savings, people that live with little to no savings and there was nowhere to turn, no help. So I met, you know, one gentleman, a successful real estate developer who for a month had been able to earn nothing and was now in a situation where he had two young children and he couldn't even afford to feed them. It's very hard because we never live in this way. We change our life from one day to another one. Everything changed, everything. It's not your life. I want uh, have a future for me for my family, for my children. I don't know what, which, kind, which kind of world I can leave to them. I don't know now. I spent one day with a man who had sort of dedicated all of his time to going around his neighborhood, delivering food to people who really could no longer afford to buy it. And this was a man who'd lost his own job, who was unable to work, and how he was choosing to spend his time. 
But that was really eye-opening to see that even after four weeks, there were people who could not afford to feed their families. Wow. So that guy that was voluntarily going around delivering food, since he was out of work, where was he getting the resources from? Because it sounds like the government wasn't doing much support, so it probably wasn't coming from the government. No, it was just a shout out to his local neighborhood and getting people involved. So, for example, the local bakery would make bread in the morning that he'd be able to pick up. The local pizza shop would make some pizzas that he could pick up and really relying on donations from the community. And one interesting idea that they started was they started to put food boxes outside um, just on windowsills and things like that. And, And they put a sign in them saying, if you can afford to give, give. And if you can't afford then please take. And this idea that although everybody was struggling, everybody has their own hardships, the idea that if you were slightly better off or in a better position than somebody else, then you would give to them. And the real sense of kind of communities coming together and people, Italians, sort of pulling each other through in whatever way they could, in spite of the fact that everybody there was suffering. I mean, Obviously, that's great, this communal activity, bringing people together in times of starvation almost. But I'm wondering if that was enough. I mean, the real estate guy you mentioned, are you still in touch with him? Is he recovering? Is he able to feed his his kids now? He is still relying on handouts and on charity. And the money often for some people still hasn't come through from the government. It has just been incredibly slow. And That is one of the reasons why people in Italy are so desperate to get back to work and they understand the lockdown. They have been incredibly patient and they have followed the rules well, but but they are desperate to get back to work because livelihoods are being absolutely decimated. It's hard to see how some people are going to recover at all. I mean, one of the other interesting things that I came across, I spoke to a lot of businesses, was the issue of restaurants. You know, restaurants are so much part of Italy's heart, of Italy's soul, some of the most impressive food in the world. And yet these restaurants, they cannot see a way forward. A lot of them are locally run. They're still paying all their rents without making any sort of income. There are loans available to them that they can apply to, but so many of the restaurant owners I spoke to, they don't want loans because they're already now in so much debt. How can they plan for a future, they were telling me, when they don't even know what that will look like, when they can't predict the footfall in restaurants? Because even if restaurants do open on the 1st of June, like the government is saying, there are going to be such tight social distancing restrictions in place that how many people can you realistically get into your restaurant? One of the restaurants that I went to visit was a woman. She is kind of sort of half gig venue, half restaurant, you know, all about people sort of coming together, sitting nearly on top of each other, enjoying a sort of good night of music and wine. You can't have that in this new socially distant world. So she can't see a future where her business model is remotely viable. Yeah. You've talked a lot about how this has really destroyed people's livelihoods. And I wonder what is the impact on them psychologically? You said in one of your films, what started as a health emergency has morphed into a psychological one, but the true spread of the trauma isn't visible yet. What did you mean that it's not visible yet? I think that we're only starting to see the psychological impact that some of this has had. And that's why I think Italy is a particularly interesting case because, of course, it is further along. You know, as, It's only really when the health emergency starts to subside that it's possible to kind of look and, 
and see what else is happening under the surface. And also, I think often the psychological impact takes takes a long time to settle in and for people to realize what they're going through. But I was really struck by the really far-reaching spread on people's mental health that this is having. So I was speaking to people who were suffering with mental health problems because of the grief that they were going through, because, of course, so many lives have been lost in Italy. So many people have been touched by a very sudden, a very tragic loss. But then also the fear. There is so much fear in Italy because of the rate at which this country was hit, because of how hard it's been hit. Fear around the virus itself, around catching the virus, of even a life where you do go back outside. People are worried about coming into contact with people again. And then you have the issue that we've all been talking a lot about in these lockdowns, which is the issue of loneliness, of isolation, and how much you suffer. And in terms of Italy, as I said, you've got people who've been locked in their houses now incredibly strictly for eight weeks. Now that has an enormous impact. So I just was struck by, as I said, the spread. It leaves virtually everybody touched. Yeah. So in the same way that people were coming together to respond to the fact that each other's livelihoods were getting decimated by giving handouts and creating food boxes, is there a similar effort to try to respond to the psychological strain of the virus and like maybe, I don't know, local support centers that have opened or something? I saw some wonderful examples of people really kind of reaching into that void to help others. I spent time, for example, in in a psychological call centre where they were taking calls from people all, all around Italy. People, they don't know what to do, they don't know who to talk with, so they call us. Buonasera, sono Antonio, il supporto psicologico. Some people call because they say I want to suicide because their life is not so good anymore. I also spent a really interesting day out with some food bank volunteers. So they'd started up providing food parcels to those who weren't able to leave their homes, particularly the elderly who were you know, having to be shielded, often going out with their shopping list to buy them food because they couldn't leave mm. their house. But actually what their work had sort of morphed into was psychological support. They need to talk with somebody. They need to smile with somebody. Salve, signora, buongiorno. That's uh, our most important job, to give a smile. Yes, they had to go and deliver food to people or to go to the supermarket for people. But what the people needed more on the doorstep was somebody to talk to, was somebody to smile and joke and laugh with, because these yeah. people often that had not seen another living soul for seven weeks when I was there. So, so these people that are completely untrained to be offering psychological support were kind of stepping in and giving people what they needed on the doorstep. So yeah, I did see wonderful examples of that. But you have to then look at the other side, which is the sort of framework in place at a health level. And Italy is just not set up to be able to provide the kind of official psychological support that many think it's going to need. I mean, I spoke to some of the country's leading psychologists who said that, you know, this isn't a country that talks a lot about mental health. We don't have a history of treating mental health. It's just not in our DNA. So now we're going to be sort of looking at lots and lots of people with mental health problems, and yet we don't have the structures in place to begin to treat it. Do you know why that is? I mean, that kind of surprises me that a 
you know, a Western democracy like Italy hasn't invested in mental health. I expected in Europe you would have much more of an awareness of that. Do you know why Italy doesn't have that infrastructure? I'm not an expert. I wouldn't want to speculate too much. But from my time there and my kind of understanding of a kind of more Mediterranean culture, there's more of a sort of stoicism, sort of get on with it mm. attitude. And people, you know, in Italy feel like, I think, the focus has, is very much on sort of your your sort of day-to-day well-being, your kind of survival, what you can afford, what you can't afford. There's much more reliance in Italy on the family, uh, on kind of relying on the support around you. It just doesn't seem to be something that people talk an awful lot about mental health in Italy. It's not the same as some other Western countries, particularly in the UK where I'm from, where it, you know, for many years has now sort of been on the agenda. Italy just feels a few few years behind. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm curious also, for you as a reporter there, obviously you're reporting during quarantine, during lockdown. What was that like trying to create films, trying to find people and interview people while you were living a lockdown yourself? It was so challenging. It was, yeah, I just, you know, found it really one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because I'm very used to my approach, you know, to filming is just get out there, meet as many people as you can, talk to about as many people as you can, integrate into people's lives. You know, my focus is always sort of people's personal stories and really trying to embed with people as much as I can. And and suddenly that was sort of cut off from me. So it was really challenging. One of the hardest things was trying to meet people and wanting to, people to share their stories, but then being so nervous to meet me, to have any sort of personal contact. So, you, for example, I didn't go inside anyone's home in the entire month I was there. And um, we had to think of sort of quite ingenious ways of trying to interview people. So I remember my first interview when I arrived was with a, with a family. Um, they, they lived in a fourth floor flat and the only access they would give me to them was to speak to them from their fourth floor balcony. So I'm standing on the ground and their balcony is sort of meters and meters and meters above. So we have a camera sort of pointing at them, but I, I do the interview with them just on WhatsApp, on FaceTime. Uh, and so we're sort of, I'm seeing them through the phone, but then looking up at them and waving at them and kind of speaking (laughs) to them that way too. And we're sort of filming every angle. Um, But funnily enough, I got a real sense of who they were and what their life was like. And we really connected in such a fun way. So even though I kind of couldn't go into their home and and do what I would usually do, I was still able to form a connection with them and learn about their lives. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like by kind of putting yourself in that same situation where it's, you know, as you said, one of the hardest things you have to do as a filmmaker, you're able to connect probably with your subjects better because you're experiencing what they're experiencing these same restrictions these same frustrating limitations yeah absolutely I mean I think every journalist has probably said this working on the story but it's the first time that you really get a sense of like you're living through the story like everybody else because your health is at risk and you're under the same restrictions and and very often we're used to to flying into places and covering what's happening to other people and this is the first time that you feel that it's happening to you too and that gives you a totally different perspective and it also gives you I think more of a respect for the story like I never wanted to breach any restrictions or push people past their limits in any way because you understand and you're all in it together. My strategy, as, a, as you say, as a filmmaker was just how close can I get to these people? So if I 
have to do an interview on Skype or through FaceTime, that's fine, but let's get as physically close to them as we can so we can have some contact, as I said, whether it's a fourth floor balcony or whether it's through a window or through a garden fence. Even if we're talking through technology, what's the safest possible distance that we can get between each other to try and build up, you know, as much connection as we can? Yeah. Before we wrap up, I know that this is a little bit of a tangent now, but the thing I did want to originally talk to you about ages ago was I really enjoyed your film about the little village in Italy that was under quarantine and you described it as kind of like a village human experiment. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that project. Yeah, so this was a sort of fascinating story that I uncovered when I was there. I heard about this tiny village uh, in the Italian hills just outside Rome with a population of fewer than 2,000 people. And suddenly overnight it was declared a red zone. And what that meant was that the army came in, sealed off the entire town and put everyone there under quarantine with absolutely no warning. So nobody in this village could leave their home, could leave their village, could go anywhere. For me, it blew my mind because it's just so extreme. It's like, where else can we think of just one tiny community that would get entirely quarantined? Like, How do you even quarantine a whole village and just say to everybody, you cannot go anywhere? And so I found the concept just fascinating. But then when I looked further, so the mayor of the village was sort of outraged that, that they could do this to her village and her, her villagers. So she'd come up with this idea that she wanted everybody in the village to be tested and she wanted their, their sort of sacrifice to be used for good. We are so um, confused. People call me at the phone and say, are we sick? They, they call me, are we sick? What's up? And uh, I say, no, no problem. Uh, it's okay, just for your safety. We have to do this, it's our sacrifice. I want that all the people of my little country uh, do the test. Our sacrifice will be used for the entire scientific community. So they teamed up with one of the major hospitals in Rome and medical researchers were sort of testing every single person in the village, really to try and map the spread of the virus, how it had got into the village, how it spread around the village, and then try and work out if they could see, you know, whether how many people were asymptomatic and if they could look at trialing possible treatments. So then it became very interesting. It's like, well, now you've got this entire community that is contained in almost sort of lab-like conditions. How yeah. do you use that? So they did run tests on virtually the whole population there. Um, what they found was that it had sort of come into the village through a healthcare worker who'd then gone into a care home. The virus had then spread around the care home and out of it. But they weren't able to take it, funnily, that much further because mm. at the point of the quarantine, where they quarantined everybody, they then found the virus hadn't really spread much. So, so actually, by managing to contain it so quickly and under such an extreme way, they pretty much cut the virus off at its knees. So then the further testing that they wanted to do in sort of really trying to understand the virus and how it spreads and treating people, they didn't have as much scope to because they had so successfully contained it. But what it did show is that the total quarantines, you know, do work. Yeah, that it doesn't have superpowers. If you can eliminate the transmission, you'll contain and like you said, cut the virus out. And 
did they also you had mentioned in the film they had like taken the signs to the village out for a period of time yeah this was my absolute favorite bit of the story so <laughs> at the point in which they decided the army decided to quarantine the village they then sent around people to remove every single road sign that led to this village almost to sort of take it off the map so that nobody would even find it which is just <laughs> a totally crazy. bizarre concept but when the mayor found this out she absolutely hit the roof she thought that this was the most outrageous thing that the authorities were trying to erase their existence. They'd taken down the signs to the town. Yeah. Have they put them back up? Or? Yes, because okay. I call and say, what? <laughs> you know, with uh, some bad words. <laughs> Nobody can uh, rule, uh, you know, can chalar, you know. Erase uh, it. Yeah. We are here, we exist, we're alive, and we want to still alive. <laughs> It was so symbolic, you know, they were there, they were alive. Yes, they were suffering. There were a lot of people in the village with coronavirus, but they existed. And this sort of act of taking them off the map felt very symbolic. It felt like yeah. suddenly they weren't there anymore. And as part of her fighting spirit and of keeping the village alive, like literally alive, she wanted those road signs back up. So she uh, had a huge fight with the uh, regional authority and did manage to convince them, I think a couple of days later, to re-screw these road signs back in because it meant so much to her, you know, this actual act yeah. of existing. I love that she has the power and the feistiness to get that done. You know, a couple of days later, they reverse these, that ridiculous action. Yeah, she was so fantastic and absolutely yeah. was this brilliant woman standing up for every one of her 1,900 people in her village. <laughs> so at this point then, it's that village there basically there's no virus transmission? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. I know the people who did have coronavirus were transported to hospital. I know there's been kind of no re further retransmission and the village has been reopened back up again. So I think they're okay. Wow. So, Jean, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, and that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Terrence Eagle. Stay safe, guys. Bye.